So DealQuest listeners, I am unbelievably excited to have Marcia Nelson on the DealQuest podcast. She has so much diverse experience in the deal space after not knowing what a deal was when she was a little kid, right? But you know the things she's done are amazing. So Marcia, tell the folks a little bit about what they're going to hear on your episode of DealQuest. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Corey. Well, I'm so excited to be here. You can hear a little bit about my journey. You know, I'm very open and, and happy to share where I started and where I ended up. But I'm really excited to share some of my experiences working in family offices and family office dealmaking. And also, I get to talk a little bit about some of my favorite subjects. I'm on the board of ACG New York, and I get a couple of plugs in there about ACG and dealmaking. So very happy to be here. And thank you for this incredible honor. Yeah. You know, so folks, I mean, a lot of the things that she talks about is some of them are specific to family office, you know, investments and, and families, but, you know, a lot of them are also just generally about what's going on in the deal making industry, right? We talked a little bit about, you know, manufacturing and, you know, the evolution of energy and things like that, right? So there's yeah, a little there's bit about impact, cool, right? We talked about, about impact right, investing. Impact yep. investing. Yep. Totally. So, you know, I think there's some great information on some trends that are going on that, you know, that, that affect investing in general. So folks, definitely check out Marcia's episode on DealQuest coming up soon. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Marcia Nelson is a managing director at ShareNet, a members-only global network of professional investors collaborating on curated quality investment opportunities. She spent a large part of her career working in and for family offices and private dealmakers. Over the last 20 years, she has developed a strong network of private families, institutional investors, and advisors who are increasingly seeking access to direct quality lead flow from trusted, experienced partners. She has served on numerous boards. She's also involved uh, with the Triple C Advisory. You can see all this in the show notes. One of the other places that she's involved is at the association. She's the president of the Association of Corporate Growth, which focuses on driving middle market investments. And she's also a board member of uh, venturecapital.org, a nonprofit early startup stage accelerator. So listen, definitely check out her bio. It's super impressive. She's won some phenomenal awards, been in who's who, et cetera, et cetera. I am so excited to have Marcia on the DealQuest podcast. Marcia, welcome. Great. Hey, Corey, nice to talk to you today. I'm here in rainy New York City, jealous that you're in sunny California. It's funny because it's been a little cooler out here, meaning that it has actually gotten down into the high 50s at night. And I laugh being a New Yorker because uh, people out here start you know, wearing winter coats when it hits the 50s. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of funny. So, Marcia, I want to, uh, you know, before we talk about all your amazing you know, deal experience and everything you do and now and you've done in your career, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a, as a little girl, 8, 10, 12 years old. Because my guess is, you know, and I want to know what you wanted to be growing up, because my guess is that uh, it wasn't somebody doing deals and in financial services and related spaces. Uh, that's my guess, but I could be wrong. You tell me. 
No, you're absolutely right. My dad was in construction and my mother was a teacher. And uh, I thought I was going to teach English for the, my entire life. That's what I thought I was going to do. Didn't really know anybody in the deal space, didn't know what a deal was. <laughs> you know, that wasn't, you know, I grew up in, in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we were not in any way, shape, or form in financial services. So it wasn't until I moved to New York with my fiance after college that I really learned a little bit about the deal community. And, and I jumped in about 10 years later and have loved it ever since. Love it. And what, what did you do in that 10-year gap in between uh, moving and jumping into the deal space? All right. I taught high school for a couple of years, and then I became an executive assistant, in, and I worked in the fashion publishing industry. So I lived the Devil Wears Prada life. I was at YM and then Mademoiselle Magazine, and it was so much fun in New York City. You know, that whole Madison Avenue period was fabulous until it wasn't, you know, until the merry-go-round stopped when dot-com came along and print magazines started to disappear. So it's when I went back to graduate school and got an MBA. Love it. And so what was your first major deal that you can think of any type? It could be some you know, deal you did when you were young, or it could be your first deal when you really, you know, in your professional career. What comes to mind? Yeah, the first deal I worked on was, was an, an, an ESOP employee stock option plan for a valuation firm that I worked for. And I knew nothing about ESOPs. And that was cer certainly a deep dive for me to understand the complications that come with that, with the trustees and the employees, but certainly some Real advantages to that for certain companies. I think UPS was one of the first big companies that I'd learned about, you know, that was going through an ESOP. So that was really, really fascinating. I don't see too many of those right now, but certainly there was a period of time when those were really popular. Yeah, no question about it. Yeah, I think they've definitely slowed down a lot. I remember that time when it was the ESOP time. So, you know, we heard some of the cool stuff you're up to in your bio, but uh, before we get into more specifics around the deals, just give us a couple of minutes on really what you're doing now and who you serve in your core business. And then uh, I want to hear a little bit more also about the Association for Corporate Growth. Yeah, thank you. So, so I'm a managing director at ShareNet, which is really a boutique investment bank, private placements for family offices and high net worth individuals. So our role there is sort of traditional investment banking in terms of some M&A advisory and certainly deal sourcing, but our niche is really finding deals from family offices and partnering and clubbing them with other families. So we say we're by families and for families. Mm, right. You have a family office, they're investing in a particular deal, they need some other capital, and you're going to raise that for some of the, your other family connections who will get in as part yep. of the deal, right? Yep. And they looked at, they looked to us, depend on us to do some diligence and screening and sort of sift through some of the noise, because you can imagine a lot of these high net worth families, especially if they're known in the industry, they get pitched a lot. And sometimes sure. they just need help sort of filtering through all the noise and finding the right opportunities for themselves. You know, what's the typical uh, deal size or range, you know, and, and deal size that you guys get involved in? Yeah, so so generally we like to start around ten million. Although we're currently working on a deal that's in the five million range, but when we're when we can really we can be additive and be really helpful, somewhere between like the ten to hundred million. So we really are in the lower middle market space. Yeah, sounds great. Good. So, and you know, we'll, we'll talk about some more specifics about the kind of deals. Uh, talk us a little bit about a, uh, Association for Corporate Growth, which you're the president of now. Yeah, so I'm a president of the New York chapter. There's 59 chapters, I think, last count or, or around the globe, most in the U.S., but I'm president of New York. I've been involved in the organization for several years and been on the board for, I think, the last seven years before I became president. And ACG is really a, a deal-making network, and it's there to help facilitate middle market deal-making. So we have 
a fair number of private equity firms and investment bankers. And then we have the transaction advisors around that, including the lenders, attorneys, accountants, all the people that you need to help you get a deal closed. And we started a family office chapter and committee, excuse me, we started a family office committee about five years ago, and they've become a really big part of the ACG New York network because family offices are doing many more sort of those private equity type deals, you know, on behalf of a single family or a small group of families. That's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I usually start broader and then get more specific, but I think I'm just going to go the other way this time. Um, okay. So what are the specific issues? You know, obviously there's, there's a lot to talk about in terms of any kind of investment deal by anybody and all the things to watch out for and the best practices and the big mistakes people make. Let's actually start. What are the specific things that come up that are different in family office and, fa- you know, and family type investment deals uh, compared to some other stuff? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. Like one in particular, I see a lot of family offices that are being driven by the second or third generation that are really interested in impact investing. Yes. So I spend a lot of time talking to families about, you know, opportunities. And that could be everything from like life science healthcare deals to food and agriculture technology to help food and food and ag more sustainable, uh, green energy. Early days, it was wind farms. And now it's all sorts of other technology that can support us shifting away from fossil fuels. So I see that a lot. And I think a lot of that's been driven by family offices, that whole ESG impact. And then just generally, for most family offices, a lot of families made their money in a particular industry. So they tend to focus on those industries where they think they already know that they know the business and they want to find another opportunity in that business. So unlike a private equity firm that can be much more general and have multiple sectors, most family offices that I know have very specific sectors that they like to invest in, or that's why they do club deals. Like that's why they'll work with a company like ShareNet because they rely on other families to do the due diligence for them. Right. They're trusting the lead investors uh, do, do the diligence and come along and there's an opportunity to, to capitalize on that. Yeah, it's interesting to me on the um, on the ESG point because, you know, we don't spend on politics, you know, on the show, but yeah, obviously the whole alternative energy versus, you know, I mean, it's a big issue in this election, you know, it's a big issue politically, but I think, you know, we're not going to discuss that, but just from what I have seen in terms of the move and a lot of the invest, you know, I have clients, a lot of clients in the investment advisors space, some of them specifically focus in ESG and socially conscious investing. Some of them have at least have portfolios, you know, within, if it's not all they do. And certainly, you know, as I see next generation, like you said, it's much more of a focus. And I just sort of feel like, and I'm curious if you see this way as well, you know, outside of all the political wrangling and everything else that goes on around it, I just think there's a demographic shift of, you know, younger folks who that's just much more important to us. So it, it almost seems inevitable to me that that trend's going to continue. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I definitely think it's a shift as the younger generations, it starts to inherit wealth and starts to have more control over where their family money is going. I also think that there's there was always this philanthropy side for some of the larger families. I think the investment side has sort of caught up with the philanthropy. So I think, and I think a lot of that's driven by the second and third generations are saying, wait, we're putting all our philanthropic dollars in saving the ocean, but our investment dollars are polluting the ocean. That There's sort of a mismatch there. Right. So I think the younger generation is saying, gee, why can't we align both of those instead of being on parallel tracks? Let's kind of like get them closer and closer together. And I think that's really another area that's really driving that, bringing those philanthropic dollars alongside the investment dollars. Yeah, and I agree. And then, and then I think there's this 
Yeah, even this concept of socially conscious business. I mean, you know, there's a lot of folks that I know. I mean, my wife and I have been very involved in this movement and, and actually moved from having our own nonprofit to focusing on more socially conscious business, you know, where you can actually make money and do good and not be relying upon, you know, funders that cycle out. And I think actually a lot of the nonprofit model, especially on the grassroots level, is, is not very sustainable. And I think there's a definite move, not that I'm anti-nonprofit in any means, anti-philanthropy in any means, but I think there's a, this is third thing that's sort of in between your straight for-profit, you know, company and your, you know, which is, you know, like these B Corps and, and basically socially conscious companies that are not just giving a percentage of their profits to charity as a, you know, as a marketing tool, but really have it as part of their core mission to make money, yep. but also make a difference. Yeah, I 100% agree there. And I also think that the ESG, however you define that, has shifted because it really did used to be a few years ago was like, you know, be happy with a 2% return. And that's just going to make your real money and your real money in the, you know, these bigger corporations. And I think there's been a real shift away from that as well to say, wait, we can make more money. You know, we can make just as much or be or more money in an ESG strategy. Some of that's driven by diversity and, and minority owned businesses and founders that, and, and more diverse boards. And we've seen that those have much better results, just generally, the, the, the numbers speak for themselves. I really think there's a shift there that we don't have to accept lower interest rates and, and a lower return because we're going to make money in the long term. And it's going to be better. It's a win-win, I guess is the word I want to use. <laughs> the words I want to use, win-win for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that as well. Yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, people you say, okay, it's sort of like half investment, half philanthropic. I'll accept a lower return to be able to do good. But now people are, you know, you don't necessarily have to do that. And it's actually broadened the market because if somebody can do good and also get comparable returns, then, you know, it's, it's great. Excellent. What other things are you seeing out there in terms of, in terms of any, you know, sort of trends or focus areas or, uh, you know, what are you seeing in the market? Yeah, I've definitely seen an interest in manufacturing industrials and bringing manufacturing back to the Mm. U.S. I think a lot of that is not driven by politics. I think a lot of it was driven by the disruptions in the supply chain since since the pandemic. And all of a sudden, I think there was a big awareness that, whoa, you know, I may be able to put, you know, this Coca-Cola can together, but I'm missing like one little component and it's stuck on a boat from somewhere. And so we're definitely seeing a shift in those kinds of, of businesses. And some of those businesses are just being repurposed. So we saw a lot of, I've seen a lot of companies in the short term say, wait, you know, we can manufacture PPE equipment if we just change our, shift our focus a little bit. So I think there's a lot of drivers, especially over the last six months. But I think some of that might be here to stay, that the supply chain issues are really, are are never going to go away. I think we've just become aware of them. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great point. I'm seeing that as well. And, And, you know, but I'm also, and tell me if you see the same thing and feel free, I mean, uh, you know, I always said, yes, I really mean it. Feel free to disagree with me if you're seeing something different or you have a different view. You know, I think you got to make some distinctions, right? Because a lot of times when people think of manufacturing, they think of huge, you know, big steel and coal and, you know, oh, and, yeah. you, know you know, whatever. And, you know, what I'm saying, at least, is first of all, you got a lot more sort of very niche, more high tech, you know, more new industry, more focused and agile manufacturing where there's, you know, a lot of money and, and growth and innovation going into which is very different than, you know, bringing steel back. What are you saying? No, no, no. I absolutely agree. I think it's more product focused, you know, like, yeah. like you know, whether it's, it's like consumer products, sheets and bedding and mattresses and, you know, companies are doing really well. Certainly the companies that are puzzle makers and game makers, you know, because uh, here we are, everybody, everybody <laughs> bought a puzzle and everybody bought a bike, you know, like some of those things, you know. Those are sort of short-term manufacturing issues. I think that, that there's going to be more and more interest, especially 
a lot of people moved out of the big cities. I live here in New York. And in the last six months, we've sort of seen a, a lot of people moving out of the city. And I think that might also drive investments in their local communities because you're going to have smart people who understand deal making who are going to say, wait, like, like, why can't we build that in our backyard? So I think that will be a long-term demographic shift. And that's like, you know, the, the crystal ball, according to Marcia. <laughs> yeah. That is an interesting trend, right? Like, I think, uh, frankly, my wife and I have been, you know, we've in normal times, split time between New York area and LA, Marina del Rey, and we love both those places. But, you know, with, with everything that happened like this, and I know a lot of folks who like this, you know, we're thinking maybe we should have at least one of our places like outside of a major metropolitan area, like in the mountains. So we're we're actually... <laughs> And when they're early stages, you know, so we're actually like going to Boulder, Colorado uh, in, a, in a week or two, yeah. you know, we take a look around there. We know a lot of folks there. And and I know a lot of, and listen, obviously, let's be clear. We're talking about a lot of people in this country that don't have these options, right? But, you know, a lot of folks who have, you know, have, have some means and level of success and have found that, wow, this uh, working remotely actually can work, you know, are, are looking at these options and they're, you know, actually the... Uh, like the real estate in a lot of these areas is predicted to go up despite maybe some challenges that might be coming, you know, otherwise in the economy. And yeah, I think that raises interesting questions, right? Because if people are moving out of major cities, at least for a little while, on a deal with a major investment banker, you know, uh, who is in her place in rural Pennsylvania and has been there yep. for, you know, eight months, you know, so uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that affects uh, things long term. <laughs> Well, and maybe she'll see opportunities there too, that maybe that you know, that she passed over because she was so busy hopping from the hot metropolitan cities, right? You know, so yeah. I think that's the other thing too, is something like, it's so important, you know, we, you know, for years, people talked about the flyover states, which I don't really think, like, I don't think there's really so much of a flyover because I, anymore, because I do think there's a lot more happening, in, you know, around the country that, that we have sort yes. of diversified as a nation, but but I do think we do sort of, you know, even hit the hot cities or the top cities and not the smaller areas where there's a lot, there's still things happening there. And I 100% agree with you. Like manufacturing doesn't necessarily mean coal and steel and big refineries. There's still things to be made. You know, the, the widget factories are still really valuable. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, and I, I guess, you know, the, those of us who do spend a lot of time in big cities, it, it's such a service economy. You know, it's funny. I did have a friend who used to own a company and, you know, I remember how fascinated we were. Long Island City, Queens, and he made uh, acrylic furniture. And his, uh, his, oh. it was a family-owned company. His father had started it. They actually used to manufacture uh, in the, what is now the meatpacking. Well, it was always the meatpacking district, but back when he manufactured, they were actually meatpacking <laughs> as opposed to, you know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you yeah. know, they moved it out of that building. Of, of course, that building became so valuable into Long Island City, Queens. And then, and I remember we used to go there and there were actually like machines and they were actually making products. And it was like the most fascinating <laughs> thing in the world for those of us who are city folks and mainly dealt with a lot of other people in the service industry. But, you know, there are definitely parts of this country, a lot of parts of this country where that's certainly having manufacturing is much more common. Yeah, I agree. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Back to your original question about like where I think the changes are happening, yes. what's happening. I definitely think that technology, and I don't mean just like computer tech, but I think technology in general is touching every industry. 
I think it's also making it easier to do more manufacturing in local communities because the technology that enables you to have robots to go out to work remote sites or, yes. or and to monitor things that, that would have taken a lot of manpower in the past to do. So I think we really are in a technology revolution and I think it's going to continue. But I think it's going to go beyond, you know, your computers and your iPhones and really get into every little thing from monitoring Farmers use technology now, satellites, to monitor crops and decide what they're going to plant and when they're going to plant. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. To not to sort of buy into a you know a stereotype, which may or may not be true for a lot of these families, but uh, uh, you know when you have multi generational families who are investing, and you have the uh, you know let's say the old guard again, we don't stereotype more often less up on technology. You know, I, mean, I certainly see it where the younger generation is like, you know, we should invest in this thing. And, you know, the old generation is like, yeah, how many years they've been in business and how much, you know, <laughs> cash flow they were flow, you know. Uh, like, so do you see some of those tensions in the investment decision making and especially in families? Well, the, the running joke is that, like, if you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office, right? You know, because they right, are all right, so, right, right. <laughs> because they are all so different. So, yes, I have seen some of those, but then I've also, I recently, um, Met a really nice family, fifth generation, family made a lot of money in oil and gas. And mm -hmm. the fourth and fifth generation together have been really leading the charge for clean energy. And they made a personal shift. And so, you know, and the family just supported it. And I don't know how long it took the fourth generation. I know the fifth generation. Sorry, I'm using too many numbers because I don't want to use their name. But they have been a huge advocate for clean energy. And they said, look, like we're really grateful that we were able to make our money in a way that now that we can be sustainable. And they said, look, you know, it was a different time. People made money differently and we thought differently about the world, you know, and frankly, like it was really great to have electricity. It was really great to right, get away. Right, from, right, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Like, like we can't denigrate this. Like it was really great to get away from coal fire stoves, right? You know, like, I mean, like it was really great to have cars and airplanes and all of those things are driven by, you know, fossil fuels. But that changed the world. And so you can't, you can say, okay, well, like we're moving beyond that. But I don't really think you can go back and say that was a terrible thing. It was a great thing. And it did a lot for us. And now we're just a little more evolved and working on the next thing. Yeah, I love that point of view because, listen, you know, at some point, fossil fuels were a great new invention, right? You know, like, yes. you know, and it made, made a difference. You know, I mean, you see the same thing with plastic, right? You know, I mean, you see those yep. commercials from the 50s where they were like, plastics, it's the new, you know, you know whatever, <laughs> you know, and it was, right? And now, you know, of course, we're finding out the environmental impact and lack of, you know, and stuff like that. Things get demonized. And listen, I think there's some legitimate tension between how quickly, you know, certain people want to evolve and obviously impacting jobs and all that kind of stuff. And those are legitimate issues. But yeah, I mean, I, I look at it as, uh, you know, it was great for, you know, the time we had it. And now there's other things that, you know, when we've learned more and we learn impacts. And so, yeah, so I love that. I love that <laughs> attitude. And I love the fact that some of those families are evolving. Great. You know, what are some of the key things that you help these folks do, right? Because I know, you know, you said you're, you're helping them vet some of the, you know, um, investments where they might not, not be leading. What other role do you play with, uh, with those clients? So I sit on five different boards and, you know, I sit on three nonprofits and then I advise a family office and then I sit on a for-profit board and all of those align for me because they give me deal flow. So I'm sort of like the canary in the coal mine since, since we're talking about <laughs> the coal <laughs> and fossil fuels, I can use that term today. My job is to go out and look for opportunities for these families. And it is a lot of work. And I know you know this as a deal attorney that you spend a lot of time and your clients probably spend a lot of time 
looking at hundreds and hundreds of opportunities before you find one or two or 10, you know, whatever your number is that you think are investable and are in the right stage for the right family. So my goal is really just to be out there, talk to a lot of people, get information that I can come back and share with my families. And then I do a lot of handholding. I spend a lot of time talking to my family office clients and my relationships because their needs and desires change. And just like we were talking about the second and third generation. So if I get in and I'm talking to the first generation, they say, oh, I'm really interested in this. And then they come back from Thanksgiving dinner with their family and they say, well, we've decided that we want to do something else. And so it's really, really important to just be like open and available and be able to continue to have conversations as the families evolve in their thinking and their desires and what they're looking for. And then part of it is like part therapist, you know, like, you know, and, I, and not to denigrate therapists and put myself in their place in any way, shape or form. But there is a lot of conversations around, you know, helping some of these families come to me because they're looking for advice or they're just looking for connections to other families, especially I had a family recently reach out to me and they had a liquidity event last year and they said, okay, now what, what do we do? Right. Mm-hmm. We had all this money. Well, you know, they said, can you help us find somebody? who can advise us so that our kids don't become trust fund babies. They, they, they were really concerned that all yes. of a sudden they had this wealth and they didn't know what they're going to do with it. And then they also said, but we also know that, you know, it, once the patriarch sells the business, you've got this almost like this pyramid. So the first generation is going to do really well, but, but you can't just go out and spend all that money without like rebuilding it. So, so then they come to me too and say, okay, like, can you help us figure out what an investment plan is? Do you have advisors and people I, like, I don't do that myself. I, definitely have a network of people that I refer them to, but it's like help them figure out like what that's going to look like because they recognize that once the children and the grandchildren and the great grandchildren get involved, like that money doesn't, isn't going to last forever. Yeah. I mean, it's just a math factor, right? Because most people have more than one kid. So, you know, you end up exponential and that's what makes family businesses hard sometimes because there are more and more, more and more people involved and they're more removed from the, you know, from the founder. You use the word, which is key in this stuff, which is, you know, you get all these proposals, wherever, and you got to figure out what's investable. Talk to us a little bit or about this conversation of investable and what are the big factors in, you know, in that for your type of, uh, of connections and clients and, and, you know, maybe some of the mistakes that companies make or the misperceptions they have. A lot of folks think they're investable and they're not, right? Yeah. I think that like the two main issues that are like, like are just complete red flags for me in the first, and it's so easy to just rule, rule these out. The first one is, is this a product or a company, right? So there's like two different things. Like some people are really good at making a product, but then does that, is that a product that they should then sell to, you know, a Procter & Gamble and let the Procter & Gamble, the company build it? Or is it a product that they really can build and scale? And then there's going to be, you know, 50 other products that they can manufacture, you know, if that's, if that's where they're headed. So, so that's the number one question that I ask. Is it a product or a company? Even if it's technology, is it a technology product or is it a company? Yes. And then the second one, and this is my like real pet peeve. <laughs> Just like tell you my, I'm going to tell you my pet peeve. I look at a lot of decks and I get to the end of the deck and, it, and it's all like, of course, everything's rosy and their projections are really <laughs> great. And you always discount them because like you never believe their projections because you know it's going to end. Because you know that like, because it's just projections, right? It's not that you don't believe it. You, they might be creating the next best thing you know, since Wonder Bread, but, you know, but we also know it's going to change. But the biggest pet peeve is there's nothing in there about how the investor is going to make their money back. And that is my like real question. I always ask like, so I care about initially, like my return on that I get my investment money back, like, like the rest of it's gravy, you know, but I just don't want to lose money. So I want to start with the baseline. You want to get me back to zero. 
And if I look through a deck and there's nothing in there about like how they, like, you know, other than like, oh, we're going to IPO in 12 months. And again, not a rosy, <laughs> that's not the projection right, right. that I, that I expect, but like, how are you going to increase your business and grow it so that I can get my money back? Is there an exit strategy? Is there, you know, it's just going to be the last round of financing. And if a founder or, you know, whoever is making the presentation can't articulate that, that's a, just a real red flag. I'm like, go back, figure that out. Because otherwise, you know, like if you want me to give you a grant, then you should ask me for a grant. But if you're asking me for an investment, you need to consider what those terms are and how I'm going to get my money back. So those are the first two things that I just like are so easy to just eliminate potential yeah. investment opportunities. Yeah. Let's say they pass those two hurdles, right? They're smart enough to, you know, have a pitch on how they're going to get the, you know, the money back and they handle the, you know, the, the first concern you raised. Then what are the kind of returns that investors are looking for? What are the kind of businesses that are likely to do that? I mean, I mean, it's so funny because, uh, you know, and I've talked about this before on the show, you know, obviously we all, you know, this idea of you're going to start a venture and raise capital and then go public, you know, is like the, the scene as the, uh, you know, the ultimate, right? And, yep. you know, what percentage of businesses actually really do that or even should try to do that? <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Well, if you look at the venture capital model, their model is a third are going to make money, a third are going to be steady eddy, and a third are going to go under. So one question you should ask as an investor is, do you have the stomach for that? Like, yes. do you have the stomach, like if you want to do the portfolio approach, can you build 20 companies knowing that three of them are going to fail, right? Like, so like, and if you don't have the stomach for that, then you should really just invest in a fund and let the smart people do it, right? And who, who have the stomach for that, right? Yes. You know? The other thing I talk to my family office clients about is like, what are you really prepared to do? Like if you, you know, if you really want to, like if you really want to be involved in a company and you're going to lean in and, and help them grow, that's great. Versus you want to be a passive investor because you want to be skiing in Switzerland or you want to be play grandma or grandpa. Those are, there's different risk tolerances and there's different tolerances for how involved you need to be. So those are all big questions on the investor side. On the company side, what I, I often look for, not specifically sectors, just generally a really good management team. Sure. And that could be, you know, the, the founders, co-founders, but also who's on their advisory board. Is there anybody involved who has taken a company and sold it before? Is there anybody involved who has worked on companies that have failed and they know how hard it is to work? You know, like those are like really at the end of the day, depending on where, if you're investing in, I guess I'm talking early stage companies here. If you're investing in early stage, you know, you know, the one to 5 million, one to 10 million, like you're really investing in the management team. Can they pivot? Can they make changes? Do they themselves have the stomach to, you know, go the distance? So those are really, really important, really sort of like you take, you know, art versus science kind of messages. Yeah, those are great points. You said, and I've heard that expression too, that, you know, when when you've uh, seen one family office, you've seen one family office, they're all different. So I'm sure that applies somewhat here, but do you find that uh, the family offices are, you know, what stage are, are the most of them investing in? You know, how early, how late? Are they doing seed? Are they doing series A? Are they doing seed? Like, is there any um, majority or are they all over the map? Well, in the last 10 years, since post 2008, a lot of the family offices that were, that started going into the investing side really started because they were, because they got hurt in the market and they, yeah. and they said, wait, I'm smart enough. I can do this myself, right? So post-2008, we saw a lot of family office say, oh, I can just hire smart people. I can just do this. And then we saw that that over the past 10 years, there's been a little bit more of a shift to say, well, like 
yes, I could do this, but I really have to hire a lot of people and it's not that easy and I, and I should just go in funds, but maybe, maybe there's another, you know, maybe I funds or maybe start a VC or private equity firm and, and hire people. So there are definitely families who invest early stage, who will do the friends and family rounds and who really like angel and VC investing. Where I spend most of my time is talking to those that really look like private equity firms, that yeah. they have built a team around them. Maybe they hired somebody out of private equity. In fact, I know several family offices that are the, the, you know, the founders of private equity firms who decided that they wanted to put, you know, they made money on the PE side and they, that, that, that company is doing well and they want to invest more themselves personally. I mean, you know, like I, I think this is public information, but David Rubenstein is a, as a really perfect example of that. He made his money in Carlisle and then he started his own family office and he's very careful not to compete against himself. And he and his, and his family office really does more venture capital investing, but, you know, so he's kind of like, so he's somebody who's kind of sort of shifted, you know, his personal focus versus his business focus. So I definitely think we are seeing more institutionalizing of the family office. And I think that's the right way to go. And I think families are much better served by institutionalizing their private investments. And even if they're doing it on their own, because then they can get the right people around them. They can attract the right investments and the investment opportunities. And they're not just getting shown everything. It used to be like, you know, people, family offices thought of themselves as dumb money. Everybody was, they were like, I've seen this deal 10 times because everybody thinks, everybody thinks I'm just going to write a check. And I think the families have gotten much more sophisticated um, in the process. Yeah, no question. Uh, Yeah. And I've seen them definitely move up market and more PE and, you know, more professional. And uh, it's interesting, this guy, I remember years ago, you know, the, the dumb money was supposedly the doctors, right? You know, when at the time yes. before medicine became a little, little I mean, they, they still do pretty well, but before <laughs> it became a little tougher, they were always the ones like, you know, hey, find a doctor, they'll write you a check. They won't, you know, and it was, yeah. it was somewhat true back then, but they, you know, yeah, they changed absolutely. as well, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, they were like, like investment pools. They were investment pools. Like a bunch of doctors in a practice would get together and put a pool together so they could pool their resources. And yeah, absolutely. That was a very popular a strategy, you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They've, they've, they've sort of changed. So Marcia, before we close, and, and I uh, give you an opportunity to let people know where they can reach in and ask you my last question. Any final thoughts on, you know, anything you've seen out there uh, you think would be valuable for our listeners? And uh, you don't need to, but if anything comes to mind, I want to give you an open opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, I'm going to put in a plug for ACG, Association for Corporate right. Growth, just in terms of if anybody's interested in learning more about deal making, ACG has some great, you know, free webinars, conferences, you know, that anybody can, can participate in, and then lots of local chapters where you can get to know other people. So I think that like whether it's ACG or some other organization, I think there's some great opportunities to learn more about the deal making space and certainly ways to come together and find opportunities if you're looking to, you know, club a deal or, you know, your investment banker, private equity, or looking to go in that route. I do think there's organizations like ACG that are really beneficial to the market. That's great. I'm glad, I'm glad you did that because I've uh, I actually have ne- not personally been involved with ACG, but I've heard great some great things about it, and I should probably. Uh, There's an LA chapter, Corey. You can even <laughs> like go stay local. <laughs> it's funny because I'm in New York chapters of everything else. You know, I'm president of the National Speakers Association chapter. I was in the uh, Entrepreneurs Organization New York chapter, but you know, because I was always back and forth, and that's sort of where my base is. But uh, you know, I, I did not anticipate having eight months straight without getting on a plane in, in, in LA. Not that I've, I've, I mean, it's been a good, you know, it's been not a bad place. Okay, great. And then if people want to reach you in terms of your core business and find out just more about what you do, what's the best place for them to do that? 
Yeah, probably the easiest thing and the easiest for members to find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty prolific on LinkedIn. And so please look for me there. And you can certainly also send me an email at ShareNet. It's M Nelson. Actually, I don't even know what my, sh- that's embarrassing. I think it's M Nelson at <laughs> ShareNet.com. Like I should, I should know that. I don't Love even it. know myself that often, right? So I guess going back to find me on LinkedIn. There we go. Yeah. And, and, and what we'll this, she puts out a lot of content on LinkedIn, so you can definitely find her. And uh, that's great. So Masia, my final question is, uh, I was on the podcast, you know, my highest value is freedom. And I, for me, that means a lot of things from freedom from, you know, all people from discrimination and oppression to, you know, the reason I'm an entrepreneur and haven't worked for somebody for, you know, um, I don't know, 30 years. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? That's a really interesting question. So I think freedom for me is, you know, giving myself and, and other people around me, I think it's opportunity. So I think freedom really comes from opportunity because if you have opportunity, you can do whatever you want to do and be valuable and become a, ultimately, I think we all need to be, you know, productive members of society. And we need the freedom to be able to explore who we are so we can do that. Love it. Well, see Nelson, thank you so much for being a guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you, Corey. What a my pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.